got. Come on up. This is Scott Caverly. Got to say it slow. Caverly. Would you welcome Scott up here? You know, this is... Good morning, uh, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Scott and his wife, April, teach our third and fourth grade boys class. Put them down for prayer right there. They have... 12 to 15 on average. They've been known to have as many as 24. Uh, so again, uh, I appreciate you being right there on the front line. It's fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun with those kids. How long have you been coming to Walloon? Uh, it's been over 10 years, 10 plus years. 10 plus years. You said you joined church 2006? 2006, yes. Okay. So what brought you to Walloon? How, how did the Lord get you here? Well, my wife had been saying that we needed a change. We enjoyed being outdoors, skiing, biking. So Sunday mornings were filled with that. Didn't have time for church. <laughs> then one of our good friends passed away, Lisa Stevens. And I came here to the funeral, and this man right here spoke. <laughs> and for the first time in my life, I understood what he was saying. So it wasn't that you'd never been in church. No. But what, what did you say? I, was... uh, I grew up in church and uh, had some great influence. My grandpa and grandma, my mom and dad. And uh, my grandpa and grandma, they were very... Yeah. Yeah, very involved in the church. <laughs> And uh, they sang in the choir, they played organ. My grandpa served Sunday school. And I just thought, wow, that's powerful to see him do that. How can I get like that? My mom and dad, they uh, taught youth group at the United Methodist Church in Boyne City, and they grew that program to over 100 kids in the 70s. So seeing that was powerful to me also as a child. Good. But it wasn't until you came to a funeral yeah. <laughs> that uh, it became a relationship yes, with Jesus Yes, Christ. and after the funeral, we had a sitter for our girls because they were very young, and uh, we went home and asked her if it would be all right to go for a mountain bike ride. And if you've ever been on a mountain bike trail, it's a single track, and it's very narrow. And uh, I cried, the hardest I've cried in years, riding on that trail, thinking about what this guy had said, and felt, thinking about how I felt inside after that funeral. Hmm. Okay. So you became a follower of Jesus. I think you said you joined shortly thereafter. Yes. Life was perfect, never any problems, no messes, no, uh, no more troubles, right? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> See, the Bible says that you can't worship two gods. And I was worshiping two gods. I love coming here on Sundays, but as soon as church was over, I had to get. Because, see, I had an addiction. And I was addicted to marijuana. So that, I had to get home. I couldn't be, I was what you consider a wallflower. Just hung out in the back, and I would scoot it as soon as it was over. Didn't want to make any friends. Didn't, just wanted to get out of here. Hmm. And uh, how, how did you deal with that? Or are you still struggling? And oh, no. You're still a wallflower? Oh, no, I'm no? not a wallflower. I'm okay. quietly involved now. Um, I got hurt at work. And I work in a factory, and if you get hurt in work, you got to go take a drug test. 
I told my boss that I have a drug problem. I've had it for over 20 years. And he said, well, we got to go through with it. So went to the test and I failed. On June 19, 2007, I took my last puff and I got down on my hands and knees and I prayed to God to take it away. He did. He did. Have not had the urge. I've been around it. For what Jesus did for me that day, I can't repay. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That yeah. was tough. Uh, somebody here might have an entangling, besetting addiction of some sort. Any, any thoughts, any words of advice to, uh, to them? Surrender. Surrender all, surrender all of it to the cross. And he will, he will help you. But you've got to change. You've got to want to change. You want to just live a new life and let him come in. And you're going to see things happen that are amazing. Okay. I know that you and April are in an active community small group. Yep. So tell us a little bit about uh, your small group experience. Well, we joined our first small group shortly after the church. We joined the church. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did the 40 Days of Purpose. And that really changed our lives. And then that group, unfortunately, broke up. Okay. So we went for about a year, year and a half, without a small group. And Mr. Gil Redmer invited us to be part of his group. And I tell you what, if you're not in a small group at this point, get into a small group, because it will change your life. These are some of the best friends I've ever had, where I can be honest, I can be real, I can be myself. If I'm struggling, I just go to them, and we all pray together. We laugh, we cry, we've had arguments, but that's what a small group, that's what family is. And I encourage each and every one of you, if you are not in a small group, be a part of one. Go see Cal. Go see Southern Gil, Cal. thank you. Yeah, that's good, good. Uh, last thing, I know that you have a favorite verse. Yes. And I thought it was an interesting favorite verse. Yes, I've never known anybody to have this as their favorite verse. Yeah, it's, but uh, it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> James. James 4, 7. I know. I, I, I remembered I've been rehearsing it all day. But all of a sudden, the words just went yeah. away. James 4, 7. And the reason this became one of my favorite verses is because the same time I was laid up, not being able to do anything, I did a lot of reading. And I read uh, an article about Josh Hamilton. And you all know him as a Texas Rangers yep, outfielder, yep, all-star. Yep, all-star. And he was struggling also with drugs and alcohol. And his grandmother, he lived with his grandmother while he was cleaning himself up, and she told him to look up James 4-7. So I did. And it says, surrender. No, submit yourselves. Then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Surrender. Surrender. And resist. Resist the devil, because the devil's there. He's watching you, and he knows. Anytime that he can tempt you, he's going to tempt me. He tempted me for over 20 years. But I broke that spell. I broke him. I'm not going to go back ever to that life. Took a lot of courage for him to come up here Easter Sunday. Would you thank Scott? Thank you.
Well, it's Resurrection Sunday. Thank you for coming and being here with us here at Walloon. We are currently uh, in a study of the Gospel of Luke. And actually, that's where we're going to be today. Only we're going to skip to the very end of the Gospel of Luke today. Uh, Next Sunday, we're going to see how Jesus deals with a group of men who had the biblical uh, equivalent of HIV. Now, just think with me for a moment. Have you ever wondered if Jesus lived today, how would he deal with people? How would he relate to people with AIDS? Uh, Come back next week and find out. Uh, Does he yell at them? Does he shun them? Does he lecture them? I think if you come back next week, you'll be surprised how he deals with those folks. Um, We are in the very last chapter of Luke's Gospel, if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 24. And we're going to see today that the people who knew, knew Jesus the best and the people who loved Jesus the most uh, were also the ones who had grave doubts about the empty tomb. They knew him the best and they loved him the most, but they could not and they would not believe that Jesus was alive on Easter Sunday morning. I think that's interesting. Here's what Dr. Luke records, Luke 24, 11, But they did not believe the women. Women ran to the tomb, came back, reported, the grave's empty, because their words seemed like nonsense. The disciples would not believe the report. Uh, but here's the good news. Are you ready? Doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. Doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. The 11 remaining disciples, you'll recall uh, Judas has already went and hung himself, but the 11 remaining disciples of Jesus were not expecting a resurrection by Jesus Christ. They weren't expecting it. They weren't looking for it. It was the furthest thing from their mind. They had given up, and now they were hiding out in a house all with the windows shut, the uh, shades drawn. They were hiding out from the authorities. Why did they doubt? Why did the 11 disciples doubt? Well, no one survives a Roman execution. The Romans were experts at killing people. They were really good at it. They had lots of practice. So no one survives a Roman execution. They saw him hanging on the cross for six hours. They saw the sword that was thrust into his side. Blood and water flowed. Sign, he's dead. They saw his dead, lifeless, limp body brought down off the cross. They knew about the 150 pounds of burial spice that was laid on top of him. Now, they didn't finish the job, but they just kind of threw the 150 pounds of spice on, and the women were going to come back and uh, finish the job. That happens a lot of times, right, ladies? Uh, Anyway, um, they knew about the boulder that had been put into place to seal the tomb in front of the tomb of Jesus, and they knew there was a contingent of Roman soldiers 
Roman guards in front of the tomb. No, they're thinking dead is dead. Jesus was stone cold dead. They saw it. They experienced his death. So this talk did not make sense. It says they thought it was nonsense. Let me say once again, doubters were welcome at the empty tomb. And here's the really good news. You ready? You might be here today, 2016, and you think about dying on a cross and then putting him in the tomb, and you might be here today and you got a few doubts. And the good news for us today, 2016, doubters are still welcome at the empty tomb. They were welcome back then with the 11 disciples. Doubters are still today welcomed at the empty tomb. Mark 16, 11, when they heard that Jesus was alive, the disciples did not believe it. <laughs> we don't believe it. We, we can't believe there was a whole lot of doubting going on. The people who knew Jesus the best, the people that loved Jesus the most, had grave doubts. So what convinced them? What changed their minds? What made the disciples go from, we don't believe it, and you get in the book of Acts, and that's all they talked about was the empty grave. What changed their minds? And the answer is, Jesus did. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 24, uh, we're going to see what they heard and saw from Jesus that changed their minds, that convinced them that he really was alive. We're going to start with verse 36, read down through verse 49. If you're able, would you please stand with me? Let's uh, out loud read what Dr. Luke has recorded for us. Ready? Let's all read together. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of the Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we get to celebrate today and study the most powerful event in all of history. And Lord, that event, the most powerful event that's ever occurred in all of history was when your son, Jesus Christ, literally, bodily, physically arose from the dead. And Lord, we realize when he did that, he defeated sin and he defeated Satan and he defeated death. And that is awesome power. Lord, thank you that doubters were welcome at the empty tomb 2,000 years ago. When Dr. Luke recorded this for us, he, he wanted us to know that the doubters, even the 11 who knew him best and loved him most, struggled with doubt. And they were welcome. And thank you that doubters are still welcome at the empty tomb, Easter Sunday, 2016. Lord, please open our eyes and our minds and our hearts this morning. I pray that the power of your word and the power of your spirit would be welcomed today in your church. And all those gathered at Walloon Lake, even those struggling with doubt, said with one voice, you may be seated. Verse 36, Jesus appears suddenly without warning, with a message for his followers. Look at verse 36. Uh, Shalom, peace be with you. Kind of interesting message because the Prince of Peace is in their presence. The one who is the author and the giver of Shalom, of peace, was alive. Remember, they didn't believe it back in verse 11. But now he's showing himself to them. And the only source of genuine peace, Jesus, the Christ, appears to them in the house where they are hiding out. Um, so how do the eleven react to the presence of the Prince of Peace? Look at verse 37. It's kind of funny if you like to scare people. They were startled and they were frightened. They were pretty sure they were looking at a ghost. Uh, and I don't think it's talking about the Holy Ghost. They thought he was a ghost, the ghost of Jesus. Uh, uh, they're sure they're seeing the spirit of someone who's come back from the dead. Now, Jesus know he's, knows he's shaken them to their core. So, verse 38, he asked them two questions. Number one, why are you troubled? <laughs> why are you scared? It's just me. You've been with me now the last three years. He's addressing their mood. Why are you so wigged out, we might say. Uh, second question, why do doubts arise in your minds? Uh, why are you struggling? Why are you so skeptical? Uh, why aren't you believing that I'm alive and I was resurrected from the dead? He basically is saying, but I want you to know I'm here because doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. And uh, I know you're struggling with that, but I'm here to change all that. So Jesus realizes they're going to have to be persuaded. 
Uh, they're going to need some facts. They're going to need some convincing. They're going to need some proofs. So here's what Jesus does. He gives them some proofs. Okay? You don't believe. You're doubting. You're struggling. Okay, I'm here now, and I'm going to help you believe. Uh, I'm going to convince you. Uh, he gives them his first proof, if you will. Come, look at me, touch me, see for yourself I'm alive, verse 39. Look, look at my hands, look at my feet, it is I myself. And what would they have seen in his hands and his feet? What would they have seen? Uh, the, the spikes that have been driven in. Okay, so go ahead, look, touch me if you need to, that's okay. Go ahead, look at my hands and my feet. It is, it is I, myself. Touch and see. A ghost doesn't have a body. It doesn't have flesh and bones that you can see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus was inviting them. Okay? You're skeptical. You think I'm a ghost. Come and touch. Come, come and see. It's me. You've been with me all along. Now see. And in John 20, 25... We know that Thomas, he had to go give a really close inspection, didn't he? He really was doubting, and he was really struggling with the fact that he didn't believe, and he, he just didn't get the fact that Jesus really was alive. Uh, verse 40, if you look at it, it seems they take Jesus up on his offer, and they actually touch him. And they confirm, yes, it's him, he's alive, Proof number one that Jesus is alive, the disciples, and later in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people touched him, saw that he really was a literal living human being with a body. He wasn't a ghost. He had risen from the dead. He's alive. The second way that Jesus uh, convinces them that he's alive and he's no longer in the grave, is Jesus eats a meal or eats some food with them. Verse 41. And while they still didn't believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, and I've asked this question several thousand times in my life, how about you? You have anything to here to eat? <laughs> you have anything here to eat? He's hungry. So they gave him a piece of, and I looked this up in the Greek, hoping that it really meant fried fish. Uh, translators got it right, sadly. <laughs> Broiled fish. He took it, ate it in their presence. Yeah. Broiled fish. Um, I was thinking hush puppies and fries and coleslaw, but... Uh, broiled fish seems to be the food of choice, at least for the disciples. And Jesus seems to, to be hungry, eats it. Uh, here's the point. Ghosts don't eat food. Okay? Uh, if I'm a ghost, uh, I'm not going to eat and I'm not going to chew and I'm not going to swallow because I wouldn't have a body. Uh, it, it would just fall on the floor, right? Uh, so clearly, I am alive, and praise God for all of us who love to eat, we will still get to eat with our resurrected bodies. Can I hear an amen to that? Uh, yes. 
and hopefully they'll have a fried fish section in the new heaven and the new earth. The first way Jesus convinced his disciples he was alive, he said, come, touch me. And they did. They saw it was a real body. Second way that Jesus convinced his disciples that he was alive, he ate food and swallowed right in front of them. Um, The third way that Jesus convinces his disciples that he's alive is that he takes them to the old section of the Bible. And he shows them that this shouldn't be a surprise, guys. This was written about, predicted long ago, a thousand years ago. It was predicted that I would die, but then I would arise from the dead. Um, Verse 44, here's what he says to them. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. And if you read through the Gospels, he tells them multiple times. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. It's a fancy way of saying the Old Testament. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So apparently he goes back and he points out some of the key scriptures that were talking about the Messiah is going to die, but then he's going to arise from the dead. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's the book of Acts. And we did that a few years ago. I want to show you just a couple spots, okay? So if you have your Bible, um, turn back to Psalm 22, okay? Where is it in the old section that that it was predicted the Messiah would die on a cross. Um, Psalm 22. We'll start with verse 7. All who see me mock me. 22.7. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You were brought, you, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. Um, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. No one is around to help me. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Slide down to verse 14. I'm poured out like water. All my joints, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Uh, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my... Yeah, you're reading. All my bones are on this... They're dividing my clothes and casting lots for my garment. Um, Where in the New Testament did many of those events actually happen? It was at the, the cross. It's talking about the cross there. But here's the deal. Psalm 22 was written by King David 1,000 years before the cross. You tracking? So so he's he's saying to them, you should have known. It's like right there in the old section. Uh, Let me give you another example. Turn to uh, Isaiah 53. Uh, Isaiah 53 was written about 700 years before Jesus appeared on earth as a baby in Bethlehem. 
Isaiah 53, um, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain like the one from whom we'd hide our faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain, bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, smitten, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are what? We're healed, yeah. Slide down to verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering and prolong his days, and the will of God will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, catch this part, verse 11, he's suffered, he's been pierced, he's been crushed, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He's going to come alive. He's not going to stay crushed. He's not going to stay afflicted, and he's going to arise. That's what Isaiah is predicting. 700 years before Jesus actually went to the cross. Um, third proof that Jesus is alive is that everything that Jesus did in suffering on the cross um, and coming out of the grave Sunday morning was God's plan from the beginning. How do you know that? Well, David wrote about it, inspired by the Lord. Isaiah wrote about it. Matter of fact, it's all over the Old Testament. Um, some smart guys have said there are as many as 300 prophecies about the coming of Jesus and uh, his coming and living and dying and then rising again. Did, did you catch that? 300. But I quote from John MacArthur, a well-known radio pastor, uh, popular writer. Um, he writes um, that a famous doctor of mathematics calculated that if you take these 200 prophecies, limited it to 200 about Jesus' birth, life, suffering, burial, resurrection from the dead, what are the chances that somebody just by accident might fulfill all those prophecies? Tracking with me? Uh, just by accident, just by chance, uh, some might even say just by luck, how, what's, what's the chances that someone would just fulfill all of these 200 prophecies? Are you ready? The possibility of that happening just by chance in the Old Testament, one in one with 40 zeros. 40 zeros, okay? Uh, let, let me help you out. Zero, 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 zero. Zero 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 zero. That's twenty. Zero 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 zero. That's close. Forty. Okay. Now that's a really big number, but I don't think you know how big of a number that is. That number is more larger than the atoms smallest particle ever discovered, more than the atoms in all of the universe. Tracking with me? So that, that number is awesome. 
and to think that one person, one with 40 zeros, and, and that's more than the atoms there are in the entire universe, that's the chance that somebody just by luck would fulfill all of those prophecies. You know what I call that? Fat chance. No way. Not happening. Not happening. Here's the point that Jesus is making to his disciples. Here's the point that Jesus is making to us. There's overwhelming evidence. There's overwhelming proof that Jesus is alive. That he really did suffer, shed his blood on the cross, and really did arise from the dead early on Sunday morning. So really, the question is, what are we going to do with the proof? (laughs) What are we going to do with that evidence? How are we going to handle the fact that it really is true and there really is overwhelming evidence that Jesus really did live, He really did die, He really did arise from the dead? What are we going to do with that? Here's what Dr. Luke records. Look at verse 47. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what we should do with the proofs. Uh, And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in Jesus' name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Here's what Jesus said. Um, When you get the evidence, when you get the proof, you should quit going the direction you're going and do the U-turn and follow me and then go share the good news with everybody. Start in Jerusalem and then just go worldwide from there. That's what Jesus says we should do. But when, when you believe it, when you finally get the evidence, you should just repent, quit going your old way, quit living for you, quit being your own boss, quit being your own little G-God, and turn and follow capital G-God, whose name is Jesus Christ. Follow the Messiah. Follow the Savior. The facts and the proof say Jesus is alive. (laughs) We should turn and follow him. We should make him the king and the boss and the Lord of our lives. Um, What Jesus took care of for us is my greatest problem, is your greatest problem in life. And what's the world's greatest problem? Any thoughts? Sin. At core, it's sin. And Jesus took care of that core problem for you and for me. Now, I just want to ask, how many of you have a favorite passage in the Bible? Any of you have one of those? Okay. Now, how many of you, at least in your top five, it's Psalm 23? Anybody in your top five? Uh, That's in my top five. Uh, Psalm 23 is the shepherd's psalm, and it says, the Lord is my shepherd And when you do the U-turn and follow the shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, what's the next line say? I shall not what? Oh, he's going to take care of me. He's going to walk with me. When the pastures are green, things are going great, he's with us. When the pasture is brown and it's not so good, he's going to be with us then too. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I just pause. And when I'm walking through the worst valley, and what's the worst valley we'll ever face? Uh, it's the valley of the shadow of death. So even though I'm like in the worst valley, 
I will not fear. I will fear no evil. Why not? Because I think I've got some good reasons to be fearful, right? I've got good reasons to be scared. I've got good reasons to be anxious and worried. But why is it the psalmist says, I will fear no evil? Why not? For thou art with me. Everybody say, for, for a good shepherd, thou art with me. Yeah. I know I didn't help you there. Sorry about that. Uh, that. That makes all the difference. If the good shepherd is there with me when the bottom is dropping out, when the worst stuff is happening, when uncertainty and doubt and fear are going on all around me, he's right there with you. He's right there with me. <laughs> and did you know the good shepherd has a name? I like this part. John 10, verse 11. The good shepherd is not just some generic force, Obi-Wan Kenobi stuff. He's not, he's not just some generic get your good karma, your yin and your yang together. The good shepherd has a name, and in John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So, the good shepherd is Jesus Christ, and he's there for us, good days, bad days. He says, I'm going to be right there at your side. But here's what you need to know about the good shepherd. Give me your eyes. The good shepherd is a gentleman. And he knocks. The good shepherd will not knock the door down of your life. But he will stand at your door and what? He's just going to knock. And I promise you, each and every one of you that are here today, the Good Shepherd's been knocking. The question is, have you opened up the door? He says, I stand at your door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. But you have to invite me in. If you're going through a season of doubt and uncertainty and I suspect some are today. If you're in like the lowest valley this morning, and I suspect some of you are, I'd like to recommend the Good Shepherd to you. I'd like to recommend the one who's already been knocking at the door of your life. He's been knocking and waiting for you to open up the door and invite him in. Here's what you need to know. Doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. Did you know that? Well, I, I've, got, I've got some doubts, and I, and I just want you to know he's knocking, and even though you have some doubts, he's saying, open up the door to your life, and I'll come in, and I'll help you with those doubts. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened and confused and hurting and struggling with doubt. Come to me, Jesus says, and I'll give you rest. I'll come in. I'll enter your life and I'll help you with those doubts. Just open up the door. Bow your heads. Shut your eyes, would you? A theologian named Alistair McGrath wrote about doubt and faith. With your eyes closed, your heads bowed, I, I'd like to share um, what he said about doubt and faith. He said, consider a bottle of penicillin. And penicillin is the most famous antibiotic identified 
by a man named Alexander Fleming, and penicillin has been responsible for saving the lives of millions of people. And millions and millions of people would have died otherwise with various forms of blood poisoning. And he said, think of faith in three stages. First, I may accept that the bottle exists. That doesn't help, though. Second, I may even trust in the fact that what's in the bottle has the ability to cure my blood poisoning. But the third step is this. Nothing will change unless I receive the drug that it contains and swallow. I must allow the drug to enter my body and my bloodstream and allow it to destroy the bacteria which is slowly killing me. Now you might believe that Jesus is promising forgiveness of sins. And the truth is, sin without a Savior is poisoning and killing all of us. And you can even trust that the promise is true. I believe, I, I believe that Jesus did die on that cross, and I even do believe that he offers forgiveness of sins, and he'll come into my life, and he'll walk with me as my good shepherd. But unless by faith you receive what Jesus did for you on the cross unless you believe that he arose from the dead for you, the cure is missing from our lives. As Scott said in his testimony, it's not rules, it's not regulations, it's not religion. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ that begins when we accept the cure. What's the cure? Jesus took our place on the cross Jesus shed his blood for our sin problem. Jesus took our place in the tomb. Early on Sunday morning, he arose for us. He defeated sin and Satan and death. Jesus, I believe you did that for me. Jesus, I receive what you did for me as the only cure available. Anyone say Easter Sunday morning, 2016, Jesus, I need that cure. I need that cure for me. I need to open up the door to my life. I need to invite you in. And it begins by accepting the cure, what he did for you on the cross, and by rising from the dead. Anybody say, I'm going to accept that cure Easter Sunday morning, 2016, I'm going to accept it for me. Just slip up your hand. I'm not going to embarrass you, but boy, I'll uh, rejoice and pray for you. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Jesus, I need that cure. I need to open up the door to my life and invite you in. I, I've heard you knocking. You've been knocking for a long time. It's time to open up the door. Anybody else? Here's the great news. Right where you're seated, you can accept the cure. Um, and right where you're seated, you can open up the door to your life and start the journey with the Good Shepherd. That's the best news there is. That's what Easter is all about. 
So I'd like all of you, I know some of you have already accepted the cure. I know many of you here, you, you've been following Jesus, you've already opened up the door to your life, but you're just reaffirming, Jesus, this is the best thing that's ever happened. These are the facts that changed my life. So everybody, Jesus, I believe that you are the cure for my sin problem. And Jesus, I believe that you took my place on the cross. And Jesus, I believe you shed your blood for all of my sins. And Jesus, I believe that you took my place in that grave. And Jesus, I believe that you didn't stay dead. The proofs are convincing. <laughs> and I believe you arose from the dead and you did that for me. Right now, by faith, Jesus, I open up the door of my life and I invite you in. I receive you as my Savior and Lord. You come take charge right now. Lord, thank you. And I pray right now as well, we may still have some friends here who are struggling with doubt. And we're glad, Lord, that even when we battle doubt for a long time, we're grateful that doubters are welcome at the empty tomb. Thank you for that. We love you. We rejoice in this day. We're grateful, Lord that you, the Good Shepherd, walk right at our side. So those that are having a, a great day and have had a great week, Lord, we rejoice with them. Lord, those who've had an awful week and uh, it's going to be some challenges in the week ahead, we're grateful for the fact that you walk right next to us. Matter of fact, you, you live in us and you work through us. So uh, give us the power to shine bright for you. It's in Christ's name that we pray all these things.